History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 12th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we have a very special guest in studio this evening with us, Colorado historian and student. How are you, Anne? Very good. We're so excited to have her here. We are going to bring you the Stanley Hotel this evening. And a lot of you are probably very familiar with it, but I bet there's a lot about it that you don't know. For example, one of the reasons why the Stanley has become so famous is because... Obviously, everybody knows about the movie The Shining, so Stephen King put it on the map. But this was actually a really well-known hotel in its heyday. So we're going to present a lot of that. Also, on today's show, our moment in oddity is going to be about Charles Dummett's gravesite. And we actually had some fun visiting that today, didn't we, ladies? Yes, we did. Yeah, it was really uh, different, so it was neat to go there. Yeah, it was a little unfortunate because it's been sandbagged, the tomb. (laughs) I don't know if they're worried about water leaking in. So at first we weren't quite sure that that's what it was. And it was kind of hard to get a nice picture of it because it's surrounded by sandbags. But we did get the name on the top of it and everything. So that will be our moment in oddity. We want to make sure that you check out our website at historyghostbump.com. It's got everything you could possibly want to know about the show there, where to find it, our emporium, the blog, all about the show. So make sure you check that out. Also, if you want to send us any feedback, things you'd like to see change about the show, or maybe some suggestions for future shows, or if you just want to give us feedback about how we're doing, you can send that to historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we'd also love to have your reviews over at iTunes or Stitcher, any of your comments up at YouTube. And thanks for sharing the show on all of your social networks. We greatly appreciate it. Not all people are buried in cemeteries. Some people are buried on their battlefields. Some people are buried along trails as they were heading to the west. Or some of them are buried in the middle of the street. That was the case when we visited Charles Dummett's grave today in New Smyrna, Florida. The following is taken from FloridaFringeTourism.com. Douglas Dummett began purchasing land in New Smyrna sometime prior to 1844. He built a house on an Indian mound overlooking the river, set up shop as a sugar merchant, and eventually tried his hand at growing citrus. He quickly became successful and is credited with starting the strain that led to Florida's famous Indian River citrus. A man of means, he was a natural choice to become the justice of the peace for the area. Douglas married a black slave girl and had three daughters and a son, Charles, who was born in 1844. On April 23, 1860, 16-year-old Charles Dummett was hunting with a friend when he tripped and fell. His gun discharged, killing him instantly. Distraught over his son's death, Douglas built a marble tomb and buried Charles in the exact spot where he had died. 
Many years later, when Douglas was asked to sell some of the land to the city of New Smyrna, he had one stipulation. His son's grave was to never be moved or disturbed. The city agreed to his terms and the deal was made. In the 1960s, as the town began to grow and developments were being planned, the grave became the center of some controversy. A developer wanted to run a road directly over the final resting place of Douglas Dummett's son. After having all of his requests to move the grave site denied, the developer finally gave in and split the road around the tomb. Today, the grave of Charles Dummett remains in the middle of Canova Drive, and motorists happily navigate around the burial site. The grave has recently been named a city landmark, and locals are happily joining in the effort to help preserve this little piece of Florida history. This history podcast is haunted. This day in history. On this date, on November 25th, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery. It was not the first visit that the president made to the cemetery. His first formal visit was on Armistice Day on November 11th, 1961, to place a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. He also spoke to a crowd of 5,000 people gathered that day. Eleven days prior to his assassination, he returned to Arlington and laid another wreath there in 1963. On November 22, 1963, while on a campaign trip in Dallas, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. There are only two presidents that are buried at Arlington National Cemetery. The other one is William Howard Taft, who died in 1930. Generally, presidents were buried in their home states, and it was believed that President Kennedy would be buried in Massachusetts, specifically in Brookline, Massachusetts, at the Kennedy family plot at Holy Hood Cemetery. But when his wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, was asked what her wishes were, she stated simply, he belongs to the people. Kennedy's brother-in-law and director of the Peace Corps, Sergeant Shriver, handled the arrangements, and he contacted Arlington National Cemetery to see if it was possible for the president to be buried there and was told that they had ample space and they were ready to handle the funeral. Jacqueline Kennedy also stated that she would like to have the funeral modeled after that of Abraham Lincoln. Mrs. Kennedy also expressed a desire to mark the president's grave with an eternal flame, similar to that of the French unknown soldier in Paris. The funeral was conducted at 3 p.m. with full military honors. Among the mourners at Kennedy's gravesite were the President of France, Chancellor Ludwig Erhard of the Federal Republic of Germany, Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, and Prince Philip of the United Kingdom. Overhead, 50 Navy and Air Force jets flew past the gravesite, followed by the President's plane, Air Force One, which dipped its wing in final tribute. A contingent of the Irish Guards stood opposite the grave, and the Archbishop of Boston, Richard Cardinal Cushing, performed a Roman Catholic committal service. The body bearers folded the interment flag and the superintendent of Arlington National Cemetery presented it to Mrs. Kennedy. She and Robert Kennedy then used a torch to light the eternal flame. You're listening to History Goes Bump. We'd like to thank Julie for suggesting the Stanley Hotel for today's show. The Stanley Hotel is a magnificent hotel. All three of us have been there, and it's just a beautiful building. It's an absolutely beautiful building, just set up on the hill right above Estes Park, which is one of my favorite places in Colorado to go. Yeah, it's a great city, and I love the tagline for the Stanley Hotel. It's 7,500 feet above the ordinary, and it's definitely an extraordinary hotel. 
for a lot of different reasons. First, I thought we could talk a little bit about the city that it's located in, because Estes Park, I think, for all of us, is one of our favorite places in Colorado. It's just a beautiful little town. Exactly what you believe a small town, mountain town should be like with antique shops and lots of little shops down in the downtown area. I definitely am familiar with almost every little shop in the downtown area. That's for sure. So is our credit card. It's also the gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park. That's very true. You go through Estes Park and right on the outside, it's not uncommon to see lots and lots of wildlife and especially the elk. Which are really cool about this time of year. A little bit earlier than now, but I think they're still even bugling at this time. It's just an extraordinary sound. And they have beautiful fall colors there. And Estes Park is all, also has uh, a couple of rivers that go through it. It has excellent fishing, and people come up there and stay in cabins. And whether it's uh, summer or winter, you can you can stay there. A lot of things close up in the winter time, but there are still some things open, and it's a beautiful city year round. The Stanley Hotel is now also open year round. At one time, it was only open during the summer. That's true. I I don't know that I'd want to be in there in the winter, but of course we're fair weather birds, so. And, of course, we've all seen The Shining, so that's another reason not to be there in the winter. But the Stanley Hotel is a beautiful white Georgian uh, revival building that is stands on a hill, and you can see it from all over as you enter Estes Park. It's uh, very difficult to miss it. Well, Estes Park was originally home to Native Americans, but uh, why don't we discuss a little bit about when the city actually got uh, set up and where when it originated and how it originated. Well, Joel Estes and his wife Patsy and their children um, arrived in the Estes Park area in 1860, which is about a year after the gold rush started in Colorado. And they built a cabin in the valley, and they lived there, and they were all by themselves other than the Native Americans. And they found that the uh, weather there was very harsh in the winter, and, of course, they had to contend with hostilities sometimes from the, the Native Americans there. So they really only stayed until 1864, or 1866, I'm sorry. They stayed there until 1866, and then they left the valley. But Estes Park was named after Joel Estes by William Byers, who was the editor and owner of the Rocky Mountain News, Colorado's first newspaper, actually. He named the the town uh, Estes Park in 1864. After Joel Estes left, there were others that came into the valley, and and there were different people. But one of them happened to be uh, Windham, and that's spelled W-I-N-D-H-A-M, Thomas Windham Quinn. And the Windham in the Windham Quinn is spelled W-Y-N-D-H-A-M. And he was the fourth Earl of Dunraven. And he arrived in Estes Park in 1872, and he loved the hunting opportunities there. He loved the valley, and he decided he wanted to own it. Well, as a foreigner, he wasn't allowed to homestead land, so he and he got an agent uh, who was a Canadian-American to buy up the land, and his agent then got third-party gentlemen to file on land there, so he wound up 
practically owning the whole valley. He had 15,000 acres by the time he was done, but it wasn't through legitimate means. It was a little bit illegal on his part. He wasn't able to keep all the ranchers and the other homesteaders and things out like he had hoped. They still kept coming in. Well, he lost part of the land through the government because the government found out what he was doing, and so he lost a lot of the land because they took it back. And then he wound up selling what he uh, still had in 1906 to Freeland O. Stanley. Of the Stanley Steamer fame. I do remember that from the tour of the Stanley Hotel. Well, what's really cool is they have a real Stanley Steamer vehicle inside. Isn't it in the lobby? Yes, well, it, it is. Oh, okay. I so say it was when I went through the hotel because I just remember the whole story about the Stanley Steamer and the brothers and everything like that. So, Didn't he found a... Uh, a a carpet cleaning company? <laughs> <laughs> Wrong Stanley. It wasn't that no. Stanley steamer. <laughs> now the people who come and clean our carpets, oh, actually, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Freelando Stanley and his twin brother, Francis, developed a photographic dry plate process allowing film to be sold in rolls, which they sold to George Eastman. They were also the inventors of the steam-powered automobile named for them. After contracting tuberculosis, Freeland was told by his physician that he only had months to live. So he and his wife, along with his wife's maid, moved to Colorado in 1903 for the climate cure. A lot of people came to color- who had tuberculosis uh, that they contracted in the East came to Colorado to be cured. Some were cured and some weren't. As it happens, if people did spend a lot of time outdoors in the clear, dry uh, climate, they often were healed. And Freeland Stanley was one of those people. He loved the area. And since he came, he bought 1,400 acres from Lord Dunraven and he built his summer home and the magnificent Stanley Hotel Complex. He started construction on that in 1907. The hotel is one of the finest examples of Georgian revival in Colorado. Freeland, who fancied himself an architect, helped T. Robert Wagner, and that's spelled W-I-E-G-E-R, design the 150-room complex. Twelve buildings are arranged in a row facing south across a meadow with unobstructed views of the surrounding mountains. The large scale and the sophisticated style of these white clapboard structures contrast markedly with the rugged setting that they're in. I know that one of the buildings was the Stanley Hotel. There was an annex that was also built on. He had stables, which later became almost like garages for his Stanley steamers. He used the Stanley steamers to uh, transport tourists from the train to Rocky Mountain through Rocky Mountain National Park, which really helped Rocky Mountain National Park become well known to Eastern travelers. It was one of the first touring companies. He became one of the first touring companies there. Now, this hotel had a lot of amenities to it. And Denise and I, as we've been doing a lot of research about these hotels that all seem to have been built about the same time that we focused on this month, they all seem to have these, what we would consider to be, eh, not real extraordinary amenities, but back then they were a big deal. But there was one thing that the Stanley Hotel was missing. What was that amenity? The Stanley Hotel and the very temperate Rocky Mountains had no heat in it. However, though, 
His kitchen was one of the first to have all electric appliances in it, believe it or not, and he had no heat in the hotel. I know, isn't that funny? And they've got running water, which is something that uh, when we did the Crescent Hotel, it was open for, I don't know, about 15 years before they got any running water in that. So this one starts off with running water, but doesn't have any heat in it. And one of the main reasons was because it wasn't open in the winter. Oh, that makes sense, because I'm sitting there going, who, what but rocket scientist about, thought of that? Because I've been to the Rocky Mountains in the summer, and at night, at it night. is not warm. <laughs> so I bet they had some extra blankets around. And then he had, you know, they had music room, they had a billiard room, they had a tavern, and they had this big dining room, they had meeting rooms, they had many lounges in it. They had a spacious, sunny lobby. It was very fancy, uh architecture inside as well and they had beautiful furniture so it's and i maybe it is just because it was in uh they were closed in the winter that they just didn't put it in it was kind of an afterthought for them i guess you mentioned that they had a music room yes and they still do have a music room there with a piano in it that was a favorite place for someone to play right yeah, that would have been his, his wife. wife. Yeah, mm-hmm. used to play there. Yeah, yeah and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later when we get into the hauntings and stuff. <laughs> but he also had, the, with the Stanley Steamer, um, the carriage house east of, this, of Stanley Hall initially sheltered the resort's fleet of cushioned Stanley Steamer or the mountain wagons, as they kind of got to be called. And they each carried a, a dozen passengers. Hmm. Tourists might also enjoy the hotel swimming pool, tennis court, bowling alley, golf course, croquet courts, and an orchestra promenading around the grounds. So he really provided high-class entertainment for his his clientele that came to the hotel. And they, on the other hand, were also very rich, so they could afford to pay for what it was costing them to stay there. In fact, they had the slogan that it was expensive, but it was worth it, kind of, is the way they looked at it. It was expensive, but it was worth every single penny they put out. And they expected it to be expensive because that's more or less what they demanded. What is fascinating about a lot of these hotels in that time period as well was the fact that they had their own orchestra. You know, it wasn't just a little band sitting over in the corner playing. They had orchestras in a hotel. Kind of. I mean, I don't know a ton about that era, but it seems like whenever you see movies or anything, because even on the Titanic, they had them playing as they were getting into lifeboats, trying to life threatening. You're trying to get the ship is sinking and they're out there playing. And so it seems like orchestra and classical music type things were very, very popular back in the time for the more well to do. But then even at that time, the rich people that had their their mansions and things in towns, especially in Denver, they would have orchestras come and play when they had guests come for dancing and different things. So that was just part of high society, you might say, at that time. Okay, so being a Colorado historian, that's not uncommon for the high society to have orchestras playing. No, okay, no. And they wouldn't have uh, necessarily just played for dances and things. Sometimes they had them come in and play for entertainment for their guests, too. And if not a full orchestra, at least several different uh, musicians would come in and play. Okay, Diane, and since we are talking a little bit about Flora, we'll just give a little bit more information in depth on her. So she was born Flora Jane Ricard Tilson, later Mrs. Freeland Oscar F.O. Stanley 
from 1848 to 1939. She was born in Maine and died at her home in Estes Park, Colorado. In Untitled Poems, she writes, The Ghostly Rap, Call Answering Ghosts from Memory's Host, I Strive to Stay in Vain. And this this will be really interesting as we go into the hauntings at the Stanley Hotel. Flora's a very kind of prominent figure with that because it almost seems with that little verse that she predicts her appearances that she's going to make later on at the Stanley. So she died in 1939. When did Stanley die? And this is fascinating because remember, as was mentioned earlier, the doctor gave him maybe six months to live. So when did he die? Stanley, who came to Estes Park at the age of 54, thinking he only had a few months to live, lived to the age of 93 when he died in 1940. So much for that six months to live, eh? Yeah. So what do doctors know? <laughs> Let's all have a party. <laughs> now, when did they, he didn't, he wasn't still owner of the Stanley Hotel when he died, was he? No. Stanley sold the hotel in 1926 to the Stanley Corporation, who was George F. Bond, Erna Bond, and James Shaw. They were the owners then that's who made up the Stanley Corporation, and they owned it until 1929. And then it came back to Stanley again in 1929, and he had it until 1930 when he sold it to Roe Emery, and it became the Estes Park Hotel Company. And Mr. Emery owned it until 1946 when it was sold to Abel Management Company, and it was the Abel Hotel uh, Company, Maxwell Abel, principal owner. And he owned it until 1966. Then it was sold to Stanley Hotel Incorporated, and Dr. Maurice Albertson was the principal owner until 1969. Then for one year, from 69 to 70, it was owned by Richard Holchek, Charles F. Hansen, and Carol Hansen Pick. 1970, it came back to Dr. Maurice Albertson, and he had it again until 1972. Then in 1972, Stanley Property Trust, who was Bill Wagner, Jim Wagner, Bob Wagner, and Leon Federson, they were all the owners of that until 1973. 1973, to 1975, Leon Federson continued to own it. He owned it again. He still owned it in 1976, 75 and 76 with Frank Normally. They became partners in it. And then Frank Normally continued with the hotel until 1979 when it was sold to James Quincy, who owned it until 1980. Then from 80 to 82, it went through bankruptcy proceedings. Hmm. Then in 82, Frank Normally once again had it until 1995. And then in 1995, it was sold to the present owners, and that's the Grand Heritage Hotel Group. John Cullen is the principal owner. So this hotel has seen a lot of owners. It's passed through a lot of hands. Absolutely. And some of them only <laughs> owned it, is, you know, we heard, for one year. I mean, it, they... It seemed to just continuously change hands. And hotels are expensive to operate. And, of course, in 19, uh, during World War II, the Stanley Hotel was closed. A lot of hotels were closed, it seems, especially from the Depression into World War II. A lot of people weren't feeling the need to go traveling, and there wasn't a lot of money for 
that kind of expense anyway. Well, when well, Stanley sold the hotel, he was quite elderly by this time. He would have been late 70s. He would have been in his late 70s. And not only does it take a lot just to upkeep a hotel in the, the condition that it's in, but I don't know how much refurbishment it's needed over time as well. Which is very expensive. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This hotel had a lot of famous people come through it. I know one that I saw during our research that was very interesting was one we've already done a show on from Denver, and that would be the unsinkable Molly, or I have the historian with me, so I better say Margaret Brown. (laughs) That's correct. Also, John Philip Sousa talking about orchestras. I wonder if he might have guest uh, conducted the orchestra there. Wouldn't that be fascinating Mm. to find out? Theodore Roosevelt also stopped by the hotel. Now, okay, I'm going to sound like not so smart with my history, but isn't Teddy the one who had a lot to do, or Theodore Roosevelt, a lot to do with the National Park Program during his presidency? Absolutely, which makes me wonder if Rocky that's Mountain why he National was there. Park. Yeah, mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain I, National Park. I bet. But that's not the only reason that Roosevelt was there. Uh-oh, tell us. Well, Theodore Roosevelt liked to go hunting, and he did a lot of hunting in the West. And he was in Colorado a lot. He was in Wyoming. And, of course, Estes Park is not that far away from Wyoming. So that's probably another reason why Theodore Roosevelt was there. He was probably there on some hunting party. And there were some visitors from afar that came by as well that I found fascinating. I think I might know. That's the emperor and empress of Japan. Yes, It's a long way to travel, especially back then. Of course, there's been a lot of Hollywood people who've stopped by there as well. Well, he's not Hollywood. He actually probably comes down from Maine, but Hollywood became very interested in one of his books, and that was the author that many of you know as Stephen King. I believe that he came to the Stanley Hotel because he was suffering from writer's block. Yes. You know what the problem was is uh, I can't remember... I think he already had Carrie and another book under his belt. But his next book idea, I don't know where this came from. We all know Stephen King has written some really fabulous stuff, and then he's written some real stinkers. (laughs) This one would have been a stinker if he would have written it instead of The Shining. It was supposed to be a book based on a roller coaster that was eating people. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's insane, right? I never heard that one. I mean, I know we've got the, what was it, Maximum Overdrive or the semi that was trying to kill people. And then you had Christine the car. But then Christine the car, I mean, we did go through a little, was it one of our This Day in History or a moment in oddity where um, James Dean's car car Mm -hmm. was possibly cursed. So Christine's realistic, but a a human (laughs) chomping roller coaster? I don't know about that. Make you think twice about getting on the uh, twister or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they moved that chomping roller coaster to Denver. Look out. Yeah, so I don't know who he gave the idea to that he was thinking about doing that, but a lot of people were saying, um, no, maybe not a good idea. So he loved Colorado. He went to Colorado a lot. And he and Tapitha, his wife, were traveling through. And he had heard rumors about this Stanley Hotel in beautiful Estes Park that had some rumors of being haunted. So he thought, hey, I'd like to stay there. Now, the interesting thing that we talked about is it didn't have heat because it was closed during the summer. So here, this would have been the late 70s. 
it still was closing during the winter, I mean, not the summer. What was the inspiration for The Shining is that when he got to the hotel, he and Tabitha were the only guests in the hotel because the very next day it was closing for the season. So he was able to have the run of the hotel, go to the bar and have a drink, walk on all the different floors. And as we get into talking about the various hauntings that take place there, I'm thinking maybe he might have experienced some of that because there's bits and pieces of The Shining that link in with some of the hauntings that have been recorded over time. I did notice that when I was looking through the hauntings and researching and reading about them. It's like, oh, okay, I saw a little a little glimpse of that in the movie, you know, in the movie of the book, The Shining. So that's a fictational yeah, book, but um, possibly based on some real events that he might have experienced or felt. Now, what has always been fascinating to me about this story of Stephen King making the Stanley Hotel so famous is it's not mentioned in his book. And The Shining wasn't filmed there either. So no, it's kind the of funny. the original Stanley Kubrick film wasn't. The, the TV miniseries, Stephen King produced it, so he wanted to make sure that they did it on the location. Right, but the, the original movie mm-hmm. that everybody, that kind of put the Stanley on the map was filmed at another hotel because it was closed more, and so there was more opportunity to film is what I understand. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but I know it's located in Oregon. And for anybody who has either seen a picture of the Stanley or been to the Stanley, when you see the hotel that they use in The Shining, you're like, what? It, it's not even close. <laughs> right. And then and then in The Shining, they actually call the hotel the Overlook. And so it's like, but regardless, at least, you know, but that, that might show his credibility as an author that he gave credit to where his inspiration came from, so much so that the Stanley was what got put on the map, not all these other locations. And the interesting thing is, as we've discussed, that a lot of these places have started embracing their haunted history. The Stanley Hotel has definitely done that. They offer their ghost tours, I believe, every night. And one of the other things they've embraced is The Shining. It actually shows on a continuous loop on channel, I think it's 42, in all of the guest rooms. Why don't we get into talking about these hauntings? So I think the first thing we should do is discuss hauntings from the original owners and builders of the Stanley Hotel. A lot of people know about Flora, which we'll talk about in just a moment, but Stanley himself also seems to want to hang out at this building. Marlene Kay was visiting the Stanley Hotel in July of 2009, and the author of of a book entitled The History and Haunting of the Stanley Hotel, Rebecca Pittman, happened to overhear her talking to a group about something unbelievable that had happened to her. She said, I was in the gift shop just now picking out postcards, she was saying in excited whispers to the four other people in her group. I paid for them and was walking out the door. I had my head down, reading the backs of the cards, when I saw a man's pants legs coming toward me. I stepped aside to let him pass me, my head still down. He stopped in front of me, blocking my exit from the shop. I felt a little flustered and thought it kind of rude, so I stepped aside again. He moved in front of me again. I looked up at him with a frown on my face. You're not going to believe this. I felt suddenly very cold. He was wearing clothes that did not belong in today, and he had an old-fashioned pointy beard. He turned around, and instead of going into the shop, he walked off toward the room on the other side of the fireplace. 
When I stepped around the big chair near the fireplace to see where he was going, he was gone. Just gone. There is no way he had time to go into that room without my seeing him. I think I just saw a ghost. You know what's interesting? You know, I listen to a lot of different paranormal podcasts, and they talk about true ghost stories. And in a lot of them, you hear, well, the person was in period pieces with their clothing, Victorian outfits. Everybody goes, why don't you hear a lot about people who are in, you know, an 80s outfit wearing parachute pants or something? Because <laughs> you never hear about that stuff. But you know what but I think? Those would be haunting. <laughs> <laughs> ice, ice baby. <laughs> now that's terrifying. <laughs> parachute pants. The ghosts of the parachute pants. <laughs> but part of my thinking of why we don't see a lot of that, there's there's a couple of things that I've heard. Number one is that Maybe as a ghost, if you believe that people, these spiritual apparitions, over time and experience, they learn how to have different abilities that maybe right when you've passed away, you don't have, you don't know how to communicate, how to show yourself, how to interact. So that perhaps these ghosts that are from these previous eras, they know more, they have more experience, so they know how to make themselves visible or that kind of thing. I've heard that theory. Don't know. This, of course, is not necessarily our theory of just something I've heard. The other thing is, if somebody does show up wearing jeans and a t-shirt, because sometimes ghosts do look fairly real, because people have had interactions with them, and then all of a sudden, they're gone, as you know the story that uh, my mom just told. So perhaps it's because you notice them more, because they're in other clothing. There could be other ghosts that are around us, we just don't notice them, because they're wearing clothes that would be more of our time. Well, that's what, when you were just saying that, I was thinking is that if somebody was dressed just like us, and unless you could see through them or something like that, but if they appeared to be more more real, we wouldn't notice them. And so that's probably why at least most of the ghost sightings are of um, other era clothing because they stand out. Ghosts who are dressed just like you and I, unless they were in parachute pants, probably would not show up as much. There was a another interesting uh, ghost ghostly visit and this one involves the music room apparently a lot of people hear music playing in the music room and on uh, one occasion and a lot of times when they hear the music they walk to into the music room and then the music stops there's nobody there they can see the keys on the piano moving before they enter the room and then they cross the threshold and the music stops and there's nobody there but a gentleman from Boulder, Colorado, in 2004, heard music playing, uh, and he heard the piano playing from the music room. And when he looked in, he saw a young woman playing the piano. But as he walked across the room to watch her, she suddenly turned into an old lady, and then she disappeared. So maybe it's not just the clothes that could be different. Maybe it's the person themselves that changes. Mm, that's a really good point, Mom. That um, it could maybe just be that they go through different different looks depending on who's looking at them or what. Uh, the Rocky Mountain Ghost Explorers has checked out the Stanley Hotel. And they have a story about Flora Stanley. Now, Flora Stanley is probably the one that Mom just read the account from from the book as well because that's generally who's playing the piano. Exactly. She could have been the young lady that turned old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What they said here is the apparition, they got a picture of her 
the, rea- the apparition remained on film, then faded into the ectoplasm again before completely fading away. We could not believe what the camera caught. Never before have we seen anything like this. We put this video together showing, and they have a video, entire formation, even pointing out all the facial features, which are very clear, and the jewelry. Surprisingly, the apparition looks just like a photo of Mrs. Flora Stanley that is hanging in a hallway where they're at the Stanley Hotel. In that picture of her on the wall, she's even wearing two pieces of jewelry like the apparition had had on in this video, which was a double necklace. Uh, she was smiling. She had, you could see her hair, her eyes, her nose, her mouth. And this was from the uh, Rocky Mountain Ghost Explorers.com. And they don't believe any video had ever been taken like this at the Stanley. Now, I do know that um, just from some of the reading that I was doing, that a lot of the paranormal activity happens on the fourth floor. And somebody, I believe that that was supposed to be the servants' quarter, so it makes you wonder, like, what that, but they, they'll they hear children running or different things happening on the fourth floor um, at the Stanley as well. Which children play a part in The Shining, don't they? Yes, they do, and that really creeps me out. So, uh, yeah, it makes you wonder if that was the inspiration for those twin girls standing in the hallway. Possibly. So, yeah, so I don't know if... As as Mr. King was staying there at the Stanley, if he did um, either read accounts of the different hauntings or, or like we discussed, possibly experience them. You know, if you're listening, Mr. King, you can always call into the show or call, call us and we would love to interview you about that. I do have the link that I will put up in the show notes for where you can see this picture that that team got of Flora Stanley. I'm looking at the picture, and it's left up to interpretation. I'm an open-minded skeptic, so I'm not beyond believing something. Um, I have a little problem when people have pictures and they tell you exactly what you're looking at. It's kind of the same thing when they have EVPs with the voice phenomenon and they tell you what you're hearing. It kind of predisposes you to already thinking you're going to see that or thinking you're hearing that. Same thing with this picture. If I was just to look at this picture without all the little indications that they're showing for her hair and her eyes and everything, I don't know that I would actually see a figure in this picture. I'm not I'm not sure it's legit. But, you know, they, it, they caught something that looks interesting. It, there's definitely... The window panes, the way they're made, you can tell that there's something, all of them look black except for these two that have the figure standing in it. It is lighter in color. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is it just lighting or was there really something there? So we'll go ahead and put the link up so that you guys can check that out and decide for yourselves. And they have a ghost thief at the Stanley as well that is known to kind of remove some of your items if you're staying in the room where he likes to haunt. What kinds of things does he steal? Well, this apparition is allegedly responsible for stealing guest jewelry, watches, and luggage. I mean, a whole suitcase walking out the door. So, um, and actually somebody somebody um, from Ghost Hunters did stay in the, in the ghost thief's room. And did anything happen while he was there? Well, he stated that the bed moved, the closet door unlocked and opened, and his thick glass by the bed cracked open on the inside. Now, I actually, did you stay awake for that? I'm trying to think of when they did this. It was, um, I know Ghost Hunters did their Halloween special there. And they did, I think they did a six-hour thing through the night because I tried to stay awake for most of it. This was when we were still living in Colorado. So it had to have been eight, nine years ago. 
And I remember watching parts of it. They didn't catch a whole lot of stuff, and they actually debunked a lot of things. But in the ballroom, everything that happened to him in the ballroom, they had no explanation for. And they said, you know what? This seems like the real deal in the ballroom. Well, and that's where a lot of the people who work there and a lot of the experiences have been in the ballroom because they, they it sounds like a party's going on, like there's a, a ball. Which would be inspiration for something else, wouldn't it? There's the ballroom scene in The Shining, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you could just see where Stephen King got all these ideas from. Right. And so, but, but the, they'll hear everything going on, but when they walk in, nobody's there. It's just quiet. So, hmm. It's not like they're a wedding reception getting ready or something. And Denise had mentioned about the fourth floor and the children. Well, actually, the children, this, the staff of the guests, in other words, chambermaids, valets, nannies, and the children of the guests stayed on the fourth floor. The children of the guests? Yes. In other words, in those days, children were to be seen and not heard. So they were hidden away <laughs> great on the fourth floor. They would have their dinner in oh, a little yeah. corner in the kitchen, the hotel kitchen, while their parents were eating these delicious, scrumptious meals in the dining room. Well, that's probably because where the children are being heard in the afterlife. They're like, you shut us up while we're here. We're going to come back and haunt the dang place. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating, though? Because, I mean, obviously the kids didn't die there. So, and, you know, we have our beliefs about children's spirits and stuff, too. Right. Well, and when they weren't eating, the children were usually on the fourth floor with the nannies or their governesses. And they were playing hide and seek, jacks, bouncing balls, and inner acting in role-playing as children do. So they're probably still doing it up there. <laughs> Which makes you think that it's maybe possibly residual-type haunting? Very possibly. As long as they're not running around in the hallways going, Red Rob! Red Rob! Okay, listen, you bring that up, but I was going to wait till kind of closer to the end, but there is actually... A package at the Stanley Hotel. It's called the Ghost Adventure Package. Cause I was looking at this going, Oh, this might be cool. But then I'm like, uh, maybe not. But it's, if it's people looking for the ultimate haunted experience. And I found this information on the Stanley Hotel's website. Um, but this creepy experience includes a guaranteed fourth floor room, a K2 meter per reservation, mm. a glow in the dark Stanley Hotel squishy ghost person <laughs> and a red rum mug oh. per person. I'm like, I could not have a red rum rug because that little guy in the shining going, the red rum, and then it's <laughs> writing on the um, mirror. I would just be like, why would I want a mug? It wasn't the little guy. It was his finger, remember? Well, this is true. <laughs> it was his finger writing it. but And for those people who may be a little illiterate, what is red rum? Murder. Spelled. Backwards. Backwards. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so it was, uh, but I was just laughing when I'm like, oh, a red rum mug. So the Stanley Hotel has definitely embraced, you, you'd mentioned earlier, Diane, that they had um, embraced Stephen King's book, The Shining, in definitely their ghost adventure package. Instead of just the hauntings that they have, they've totally embraced his fictional hauntings as well. Earlier, I had mentioned that there were a bunch of Hollywood people who had stayed there, Denise. One of the people who has stayed there is Jim Carrey. Now, he specifically asked to stay in room 217. Then why would he want to stay in room 217? Because that is the room that Stephen King stayed in that is supposedly one of the most haunted locations in the hotel. 
And here's the interesting thing. He only managed to stay there, according to some of the staff, for three hours. So something drove Jim Carrey out of that room within three hours. The story behind Room 217 is that there was a housekeeper there. Her name was Elizabeth Wilson. And she had gone into the room and she did not realize that there was a gas leak in the room. I don't know if back then they put the sulfur smell in gas because gas doesn't have a smell. That's right. They've added sulfur so that we know when we're having gas leaks. And back then, a lot of the lighting, even though they did have electricity, they used candles a lot as well. So what she did is she went into that room and lit some candles. It blew out the room, almost killed her. She did survive it, and she did continue to work at the hotel for the time after that. But apparently, she does haunt this room, or something haunts this room. Her apparition has been seen. The toilets flush on their own. It's what we hear about in a lot of these haunted rooms. Lights turn on and off. I'm assuming if Jim Carrey only managed to stay in there for three hours, there's probably some touching going on. So it's, it's fascinating to hear that story because she wasn't killed by the explosion, and yet they think that she's still there, so that it was something that had so devastated her that she's just locked in there now. Oh, and here's the interesting thing, too, in that room. I forgot. It's not always bad stuff that happens in there. Occasionally, people's suitcases will be unpacked for them, their beds will be made for them, and it's not the regular housekeeper coming in and doing it. Well, that apparition is more than welcome to travel with me. Well, no, no, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take that back. I'm not tempting the spirits. I just thought of that. Don't tip the spirits. But um, so I strike that, you know, you can stay at the Stanley. I don't need you traveling with me and unpacking my bags. Uh, I'll let Diane do that. I have another story about room 217. Ooh, do tell, Mom. Another guest who stayed there by the first, we had first name of Daniel. He wrote this about his stay at the Stanley that night. Midnight had come and gone in room 217 before I saw any paranormal activity. Before calling it a night, I had opened a single window and set up a fan to blow the cool mountain breeze toward my bed. If you listen very carefully, you could just make out the sound of the wind blowing through the trees outside. While I lay sleeping, and probably snoring, under a mound of blankets, I felt my wife crawl out of bed. She padded across the carpet, either tiptoeing or taking tiny, quiet steps. I opened one sleepy eye, looked at the bedside clock, and then saw my wife standing at the open window, her face pressed against the screen. You have to see this, she said, and turned to me. She beamed, and her dimples deepened the way I'd always loved. She said, There's a family of elk just outside. And the fan blew her long hair about her head, so she looked like she was either floating or underwater. I stared at her for a long time. My wife had been dead for five years. Oh, that's creepy. That's very creepy. I wonder in The Shining... Because I haven't seen the movie for a while, but he has the experience with the woman. I wonder which room that is. You know where he goes in in the actual Shining. Yeah, in the it's not two seventeen. They did change it in the Stanley Kubrick film. Maybe some of our listeners are going to jump on me because I'm just going to guess this off the top of my head. I think it's room two three seven. Okay, yeah. So that I'm not sure, but I just remember there is a a woman kind of incident in The Shining. Again, we're kind of crossing a fictional 
ghost or haunted movie with real 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 accountings of the of the different ghosts and so hopefully we're not confusing people bouncing back and forth but it is amazing how much of it kind of seeped into the movie here's a little bit about the daniel whose wife had died daniel was on a ghost tour in 2007 and he was enjoying the stories of the hotel's past and present and he had mainly signed up in order to learn more about the stanley steamer car he had seen in the lobby because he was a professional car nut when the tour climbed to the second floor and he was taken into room 217 he was very impressed with how nice the room was so that's just a little bit about how daniel probably wound up sleeping in 217 we mentioned lord dunn raven earlier And this is the gentleman who swindled people out of a bunch of their land that had the area that the Stanley Hotel is sitting on now. Apparently, he wants to stick around the place as well. He's been seen in room 407. He likes to stand in the corner of the room closest to the bathroom door. I don't know, maybe he has that issue. (laughs) He needs to be near the bathroom. One witness has said that a light constantly turns on and off. When the light was off, the witness informed the ghost that they knew of his presence. They also told him that they were just staying two nights and requested that he please turn back on the light. The light came back on. Later, the lights were off, but noises kept coming from an elevator close by. The problem was that this particular elevator was out of order at the time. There are other reports of a ghostly face peering out of the window of room 407, even when the room is vacant. Hmm. And so you were just mentioning... Well, what's his name? Dunn? Dunraven? Dunraven. Is that a room that he stayed in ever? I mean, because he swindled them out of the money. So I'm guessing that he was kind of never welcome at the hotel. No, he sold the land before the hotel was built. So I don't think I don't think he came back. I think he left uh, the United States and went back. So he was mad they had his land. And maybe that's why. I, we'll never know the answers to all these questions, but it's fun to hypothesize. We like hypothesizing. Good thing our show's not based on total fact. <laughs> Lord Dunraven doesn't just haunt 401 or 407. He also haunts 401 and most of the fourth floor. And remember, that was the children's floor. Maybe that's the only way he could come ever come back and see see the um, the beautiful hotel. Because I'm sure after he was so awful to them, like I said earlier, I don't think he would be welcome there. Now, we always wonder why certain places are haunted, what it is about them that makes them that way. As Mom had mentioned earlier, there are a couple of rivers there by the the Stanley Hotel. We always know that water is somehow a conductor of these things. Also, when you take the ghost tour, and I don't mean to be mean about this, but they do give some misinformation during that ghost tour. They will tell people that there is limestone and quartz in the ground that the hotel is on. And as we discussed with the Crescent Hotel... That limestone and quartz are both conductors of energy and... and They seem to hold energy and that kind of thing. Well, because of these claims that had been made and because they were trying to figure out why this was going on, the U.S. Geological Survey came in and they tested everything. And what had happened is, uh, I believe the group is called Rocky Mountain Paranormal had asked them to come in and check this out because they wanted to know, is this why this is going on? And after they did... All kinds of surveys. They tested the soil. They did some satellite surveying. It showed that there is nothing unusual going there. There's no large deposits of quartz, limestone, magnetite, nothing of that. It's just basically crumbled schist. And that's (laughs) (laughs) S-C-H-I-S-T, which is not radioactive in any way or anything of that nature. So 
why is this got so much haunting going on? We may know because we just know it's built on a pile. Of- <laughs> Sorry, it's I could just a pile of schist. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you for that over there in the peanut gallery. You are very welcome. It could just be because it's a hotel. And you know, lots of things and lots of people are in hotels. Things happen there because people stay there. So, is the Stanley Hotel really haunted? Are these just different gatherings or imaginations of the people who have stayed there? That is for you to decide. Thank you so much for joining us for this kind of loosey-goosey roundtable discussion we had this evening, Mom. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad I could join you in person this time. I really enjoyed the fact that Mom was getting into all the haunted stories, because usually when we get her cornered, she stays very historic. It's historic, historic, in fact, and so it was really fun to see her going, oh, I have another story that I just found. (laughs) Yes, indeed. That is a fun little piece there, and... We hope that all of you have a very blessed and happy Thanksgiving. And one thing to keep in mind when it comes to Thanksgiving, we always like to think about the history with the pilgrims and the Indians. But since Denise and I originate down here in Florida, we know there's a little bit of controversy when it comes to where was the first Thanksgiving? Because where is the oldest city in America? The oldest city in America is here in the southern state of Florida, St. Augustine. And an interesting little tidbit there, the people who were living there, the Spanish explorers and the Indians, they had meals together, didn't have turkey, they had a lot of fish. So was the first Thanksgiving actually here in Florida at St. Augustine? And should we all maybe quit having Thanksgiving turkeys and start having Thanksgiving flounders? Uh, No. Oh, okay. Has to have turkey. Okay. Well, just, just wondering. And stuffing. And stuffing, mashed potatoes. And gravy. Mm. And sweet potatoes. <laughs> and of and course, pie. Don't, forget, don't forget the cranberry sauce. All right, I've already put on 10 pounds <laughs> just talking about it. So you all have a great Thanksgiving. We'll be back on with our next show on... The Queen Mary. Yes, the final installment of our hotel series. Didn't know we'd made a series up, but hey, there you go. We already have a series and we've only been in business for two months. That's awesome. (laughs) Exactly. So what do you want to hear about in December? Make sure you give us some feedback. Let us know. Is there a haunted location, person, or event you want to know more about? Ask us about it. Suggest it to us. We'll find out about it for you. We just want to thank you all for joining us. This has been Diane. And Denise. And Mom. You take care now. Bye-bye. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.